disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. It's the Disruption Zone. I'm Leland Conway. Great conversation today with my friend Josh Crawford, Executive Director at the Pegasus Institute. We talked about a bunch of things. Weightlifting, cops defunding the police. What a terrible idea. And uh, the vaccine. We got into the debate about restaurants. Uh, all of that stuff coming up right now. Uh, but first, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops helps make this Labor of Love podcast possible. Check them out at 6200 Hit Lane in Louisville, Kentucky. You can uh, talk to their designers, Kelly, Michelle, and George. They would love to help you with your turnkey kitchen remodel. Or if you're a contractor uh, or a do-it-yourselfer and you want high-quality cabinets in stock, they've got them. If you're in southern Indiana, Louisville, or Oldham County, 6200 Hit Lane in Louisville is your place, LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com. All right, now our conversation, starting with weightlifting and then meandering through a whole bunch of other cool stuff uh, with Josh Crawford from the Pegasus Institute. Um, cool. Josh, how's the uh, how's the weightlifting going? I know you've been working on some maxes and you're getting back into the weight room, and uh, I've seen some of your pictures on social media. How's that working out? So far, so good. I uh, had a max week about a week and a half ago for the first time since law school. Um, so I actually... Did I lose you? Yeah, sorry about that. So you had a so you had a max week uh, for the first time since law school? Yeah, and uh, I actually took the next week off uh, because uh, I forgot how much those hurt. But... Um, <laughs> So okay, but, so you wait, know, when you do it, when you're talking about a because you're you're a is a competitive weightlifter or a bodybuilder, which class would you fall into? Yeah, so I was a competitive powerlifter okay. in high school and college. I haven't competed uh, in a number of years. I've flirt with the idea every once in a while of of giving it sort of a the old college try one more time, and and if I can keep this up, I probably will in 2021 at some point. So when you talk about a max day for you, it's a little different than a max day for me because I'm not a bodybuilder. I do a lot more functional fitness. Um, I do max days probably once every other month or so just to keep pushing for strength and make sure that the muscle mass is there as I get older, but um, you're talking about a totally different kind of max day, right? Like, I mean, your body is completely destroyed when you're done, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm talking competition style one rep maxes, right? Okay. So the, that's, that squat is below parallel. Uh, mm. you know, uh, the, the bench press, which is the thing that I think is the most different for people in competition versus just when you're in the gym, competition style bench press, you lift the bar off the uh, off the rack, bring right. it down to your chest. You pause for a second while it's on your chest, and then in a competition, they'll tell you when to press. Uh, when you're in the gym, unless you got somebody doing it for you, you just sort of pause for that second, right. and it's the longest second of your life. I mean, it, it, it <laughs> feels like forever. Yeah. Um, and so then it's a dead press, right? There's no bounce. There's no oh, yeah, benefit yeah. of of an object in motion tends to stay in motion, kind right. of thing. And so you're you're pushing from a, a stopped position, and then the the deadlift is is basically what uh what you would think of as a deadlift. Yeah. But 
I had a trainer. I had a trainer that taught me um, for strength. He was like, it go, "It's counterintuitive," but he was like, "Don't go all the way down with the bench. Go down to about where your elbows are parallel with everything. Stop. Take a second. Then lift up." And I think what he was trying to do was that it was it was a replication of that same idea that it's harder to go up even on what would be considered a half rep from dead stop than it is to go all the way down, bounce it off your chest and go back up. And as a result of that, even when I do full reps, I no longer bounce. I always come down, pause, go up. I don't do it with the max weights you guys do, but I think that (laughs) makes you stronger. Oh, absolutely. I I remember the first time I competed. And uh, so I was, I was 17 years old. The first time I did a, a competition No, 16, excuse me. And, you know, I was pushing around 400 plus in the gym and then I got to the competition and it was like, this is how it's done at competition. And Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, you know, you do 330 and then you got, I think I got like 350 in my first competition. And it was like, that was, you know, 55 pounds less than what I was doing at the gym at the time. And I was like, oh man, I got to get serious about the technique here. Right. And that's one of the things about all competitive lifting, whether it's the strongman competitions, the Olympic style lifting, um, competitive powerlifting, um, strength is obviously incredibly important, right? Mm-hmm. But technique is, is nearly as important as the raw strength is. And once you get that down, you can start to actually progress, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm I'm enjoying getting back into it. That's awesome. What's your uh, one rep bench press max? Uh, so I did 405 uh, two weeks ago. Jeez. Um, and and to be honest, I was I was kind of disappointed by it. Um, I had tweaked my chest about two weeks earlier, and it was bothering me a little bit that day. So I'm I'm hopeful the next time I do it, which will be much more sooner than law school. Right. Um, uh, I'll probably do it again in in six to ten weeks, and I'm I'm hoping to get closer to four fifty. What's your lifetime? Uh, max? So the the highest I ever got was just under five hundred. So I think it, it, uh, competitions are in kilos, so the trans the translations are weird to pounds. Yeah, yeah. But it was like it was like four ninety eight or something like right, that. Right. Wow. So my lifetime bench max is two thirty five. That's it. <laughs> 235 little puny skinny arms but i was pretty proud of that i mean because i remember what's, what's that i would say you should be i mean that that's the thing right uh i i did this at a very elite level for a right. period of my life and so even now i've got a competitive advantage on a lot of people who sure. are just sort of recreational lifters and right. so I, I tell people this all the time right that the person that you're ultimately competing against, unless you're literally in a competition, is yourself the day yeah. before, or the week before, or the month before. Yeah, I agree with and that. And so, so yeah, I try to you progressing is is more important, you know. Yeah, and at 45, I'm I'm about functional fitness personally, and right. So, but it's weird because I'm setting new personal bests, you know, things yeah. that that I didn't think that I could do. Um, you know, with deadlifts and other things, just because every now and then I go like, you know, I try at least once a week to, I call it just lift heavy things, just lift heavy things. And it might be a workout where, you know, I do one of those hex bars and uh, pick it up, you know, do a deadlift with it, then walk five, 10 yards, turn around, walk back, do another deadlift, you know, just carrying heavy things around. Uh, yep. because muscle mass is like one of the best predictors for longevity. If, if you have yeah. good muscle mass and good joints, uh, you're probably going to live a lot longer. Um, so that's, yep. that's kind of where I'm coming from. I, I think it's fascinating what you do. What's your all-time squat? 
so that was that was over seven hundred. Um, Golly, yeah, and that's below yeah, parallel, I, like you said, right? Like that's oh yeah. We're talking yeah. about squatting all the way down to where you're sitting on your calves, basically, almost. Yeah, I I won't ever get that high again. In part because, and you know, I'm I'm only thirty, but like my knees, I recognize my knees don't need that anymore. <laughs> right? I'm not. Right. I'm not twenty. Uh, anymore, and so I'll, I'll probably never go that high again. But I, I do want to hit above six. I want to get to that sort of six fifty range yeah. uh, again. Um, and, uh, and what's your what what's your diet that. like when you're when you're training? So it's very heavy protein. Yeah, um, very very heavy protein, and sort of it. It's not dissimilar from um, what you see a lot of folks do with the sort of paleo type diet. Right. But there's sort of like a 20% increase in carbs over right. what you would see in a paleo diet, right? right? And so it's not it's not traditional carb, it's not heavy carb, but it is um, more uh, more towards that than the sort of uh, paleo type diets. When but you're it, lifting that kind of weight, you're depleting your glycogen in your muscles, and right, you know there has to be a slight you know response to that because of what you're doing you know, that, that is where you get that uptick in carbs and, you right. know, it has to come from somewhere. What, what are your sources though? Like, how do you, like you, do you source clean food? Do you source clean carbs or what I would call oh, non-processed yeah. carbs? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big, I'm a big believer in if you're gonna, and I may have even said this to you before, if you're going to get into the added sugar game, make sure it's worth it, right? right. Like, make sure it's a piece of chocolate cake, make sure it's a cinnamon roll, like don't don't have that. Don't have your 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 processed carbohydrates and your added sugar in your everyday regular parts of your diet. Right. right? And so, right. like, if you want to eat that piece of chocolate cake, eat that piece of chocolate cake. But um, you know, eat eat your fruits, eat your vegetables, eat your complex carbohydrates right. uh, that are sort of more natural. Um, and then if you want to get into the added sugar game, make it worth it. Yeah. Um, on a on a particular day, kind of thing. Totally agree. I I usually do a cheat day and. Um, I try to eat still clean foods, but like, I, I don't know if you've heard of the brand simple meals. Um, okay. they make like, they make crackers out of almond flour and they just rolled out a line of cakes and muffins mixes that comes pre-done. Okay. It's all organic. Um, it's low sugar, low carb. It's not like keto, low carb. Like there's still like 10 carbs in a slice of cake or a muffin, but it's unbelievably delicious. It's super healthy. And what I do is I make like a heavy, I go with, I take heavy cream, whip it for like three minutes with a, with a, you know, an electric mixer. I add in a unsweetened cocoa, vanilla, and a little bit of honey. And it makes like a fluffy chocolate icing. That's again, low carb. Cause you're just sweetening it with just a little bit of honey. Slather that on top of the cake. Dude, it's freaking unbelievable. And you talk about making yeah. your carbs worth it. You don't walk away with that pit in your stomach that you would from a really highly processed, gummed up, sugary cake. But the taste right. is just as good, if not better. So I love it. Yeah. It's awesome. Man, we could talk yeah. about this all day, but there's some yeah. there's some important issues out there I want to uh, dive into. Obviously, the Pegasus Institute is a treasure in the state of Kentucky and beyond, in my opinion. Um, the work that you guys do... Uh, in terms of not being partisan at all, I, I love and respect the way you approach stuff. You're just trying to get good common sense policy into the public square and into the discussion. And one of the dumbest things that has arisen in our society in the last, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 years of, of politics is this summer's 
defund the police movement. I, I can't think mm-hmm. of a more stupid idea behind what is originally, in my opinion, a justified conversation. And it was like the wrong folks got a hold of this justified conversation and turned it into something that nearly everyone in America rejects. And it shouldn't be that right. way because we should be having conversations about how police interact with neighborhoods, especially in urban areas, especially in areas where there's a lot of people of color. We should absolutely be having that conversation. But when you start off with defund the police, you lose 99% of the public. And you guys have done some research on what the effect of the police in a neighborhood actually is. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so the the piece that you're referring to is actually a write-up in City Journal from our friends at the Manhattan Institute, mm-hmm. who we are sort of frequent co-collaborators with. Yeah. Um, and, and the write-up there is of a study that was done on um, policing in Dallas. And so um, more cops, less crime is one of these truisms in academic criminology, right? It's it's a bit like what free trade is for economists, right? Like everybody understands it works, um, and then there are differing theories on why it works and what you need to do to make it work better and those kinds of things. But, But more cops, less crime is one of these sort of generally held macro beliefs in academic criminology on the right center and sort of center left. Once you get further left than that, I I can't make any promises. But for the vast majority (laughs) of folks, there's a consensus around this. But there has been this lingering question of why. And so sometimes you'll hear people say things like, more cops better managed reduces crime, and they'll emphasize the leadership component. Or more cops doing more reduces crime, which which emphasizes the sort of self-initiated police activity stuff that, that you and I have talked about before. Right. But what this Dallas study does, and it's a brilliant study, um, it's, it's a really interesting way to do things. Uh, and what they did was, so Dallas put GPSs in all of their squad cars in 2000. Okay. And so what these researchers did is they looked at data from 2009 and what they did was, rather than look at, um, and they looked at beat cops, but rather than look at crime in the beat when the beat cops are there, they said, what happens when those beat cops leave on a call for service? Okay. And so what they did was, they they looked at this and they said, okay, this is the area that those cops patrol, and what happens when they leave that area to go on a call for service? And what they found was a 10% reduction in the beat cops' time in the area, resulted in about a four, or excuse me, a seven point four percent increase in crime overall. Right. Um, when they spent ten percent more time in the beat area, they were doing fewer calls to service outside the beat uh, area. There was a five percent drop in burglary and about a six to seven percent drop in uh, public disturbances. And so, what this research kind of shows us is that mere presence actually has some deterrent effect on crime. Uh, certainly crimes like burglary and public disturbance we see, uh, but that that 7.4% drop is in crime overall. Right. And so what it tells us is first and foremost that, that cops just being in the area, um, because it says nothing about what they're doing while they're there, it's just a question of, of them being there, reduces crime some. And this is instructive for a couple of reasons, right? Law enforcement is never going to be omnipresent. And for people uh, like you and I who believe what, what, we, what we believe, we would never want law enforcement to be omnipresent, right? right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, but in certain spots 
where um, folks are most vulnerable, where crime is most problematic, uh, by just putting some additional officers in that area um, rather than having officers sort of willy-nilly across the city um, can have a, a deterrent effect and reduce crime some in those areas. And so it's instructive for police strategy, especially in some of your most challenging areas. All right, here's a question. Has has there been a study that addresses, okay, is there, you know how things, you know, like the Laffer curve on taxes. Too mm-hmm. low, we don't have enough revenue to run government. Too high, we got too much government in the way. Uh, and we don't have enough capital in the private sector to um, to run you know the the economy is there is there any kind of survey or study done on that type of idea sort of a laffer curve laffer curve for uh policing in other words if you put some beat cops out there um you know non-militarized so to speak then you have a drop in crime because there's community aspect to it versus the more you militarize police because this is sometimes and i think the left is somewhat justified in this where they start to get upset is like, well, it feels like the the police have become a military in some places. Um, again, I don't want to dive too far into that topic. Maybe it's a conversation for another day. But has anybody studied, is there a laugher effect in terms of policing and how you put those those police bodies out there, how they're dressed, how they're approaching? You understand what I'm getting at here? Like, is there a, yeah. is there a curve here where you can go too far, too much? Yeah, so there's not a specific study that has concluded something like that, but that's a brilliant way to put it, Leland, because if you put together the panoply of studies on policing, that is essentially what it shows, right? We know um, with a pretty high level of certainty that if you remove law enforcement from high crime areas, that those areas will see upticks in crime and that those high crime areas will grow and spread. Um, But what we also know, right, is that there are negative consequences from suppression-style policing. So that sort of uh, take-and-occupy approach, which was very popular in the 80s and 90s, um, there's two problems with it. One, it's super expensive. Um, And so eventually, you will have to abandon that strategy, right? You can flood cops to a particular area for a short period of time, but that takes overtime. It takes the expense of those officers. And so if that's your primary strategy, it's going to get very expensive very quickly. Um, and and your highest risk criminals understand this, right? So they'll wait you right. out. Um, if, if I've got a beef with somebody and I know that uh, law enforcement is flooding in my neighborhood, but I know they're only going to do it for two weeks because it's expensive, I'll just wait two weeks. Right, there's know? a delay aspect and the crime's still going to happen, yeah. Right, exactly. And the other thing that it does is uh, when you use suppression-style policing methods like that, you're going to create you'll have more positive interactions in that you'll make more arrests of, of serious offenders theoretically, but you'll also have more negative interactions, right? You'll, you'll end up pulling over the kid who didn't use a left-hand turn signal, who if he lived in a better part of the city never would have been pulled over. And now he's got a negative interaction with law enforcement, right? And so uh, from our vantage point and from our perspective, um, more cops doing more, more efficiently and effectively is really the ultimate uh, sort of have your cake and eat it too strategy. Right. Um, things like focus deterrent strategies allow you to to do both, right? To focus on your uh, high risk individuals, but not have a lot of those negative interactions, not be omnipresent in neighborhoods. But what what this study shows us is for 
and and there's not a great example in Louisville, but there are places in certain cities, uh, especially where there are still sort of high-rise housing projects, yeah, where there are uh, you know very serious crimes that occur on a very regular basis. That additional law enforcement presence uh, in those areas, especially in the form of beat cops, right? So again, not not SWAT cops, not uh, you know surplus military equipment carrying cops, but the the folks who develop the relationships and are a constant presence in the neighborhood and become on a first name basis with most of the law abiding residents in the area. For for areas like that, simply putting some additional law enforcement in that area may help you to, uh, to to tamp down some of the worst violence in those areas. So how do we bring the right and the left together on this? Uh, obviously, we have to ditch the ridiculous defund the police. And I, I almost laugh every time I see some pundit waxing poetic on one of the major networks defending the idea and then saying, no, no, it's not what it's really about, but we want to keep the saying. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter what it's about if the saying is out there. The saying says what the saying says to people, right? Like I don't, I don't care what the right. nuances are of what you're trying to achieve. Um, the, you put it in a in a super simple slogan that sounds stupid, so you got to change that. But how do we bring right. the right and the left together on this? Where we we have that common sense conversation, where we follow that curve. Let's get the right amount of cops in a place. Let's get them doing the right things. Um, and let's not overkill it, not underkill it. You know, it's got to be in that sweet spot. And and it's not going to be social workers going from door to door. That's not going to solve the problem. It's got to be cops. It's got to be police with the right. authority. Um, right. So how do we do that? Yeah, I think there's probably two things that both sides need to be willing to admit before they can come to the table and actually get somewhere on this, right? What the left needs to acknowledge, first and foremost, is that the overwhelming majority of law enforcement officers in this country are good people who are trying to serve their community and get up every morning trying to do, or get up every night or whenever their shift is trying to do the right thing. Right. The second thing that the left has to admit is that law enforcement will always be the primary uh, entity of public safety in this country. Right. To your point, uh, we, we can't send social workers into these environments and expect them to be the primary um, public safety component in our neighborhoods. Can they be an accessory? Perhaps in certain circumstances, it, it can be very beneficial, but they will never be the primary uh, uh, entity for the protection of public safety. That will always be law enforcement. Yeah. Uh -huh. On the right, we have to admit two things. There are bad cops. Yes. There are cops who um, who do the wrong things, and we have to be willing to be comfortable with systems that can uh, extract the bad actors while also protecting the fact that the overwhelming majority of law enforcement officers are are doing the right thing. And even when something tragic happens, more often than not, it's going to be a good faith mistake and not something malicious, right? And so despite all that, we do have to acknowledge that there are bad actors and the system has to account for those bad actors and remove those bad actors. The second thing that the sort of uh, small government or, or perhaps libertarian wing of, of the right needs to understand is that we're not going to be able to get this on the cheap. Right. Um, it, it is one of the essential elements of government, and therefore we have to be willing to spend the money necessary to make sure that we have the police department that we want. Right. Um, whenever I hear folks talk about um, uh, training law enforcement more like Navy SEALs, and it's almost always folks on our side who, who talk like that, I, I'm, I find it kind of funny because those folks will then turn around and, 
and not recognize How much that, that the amount of money that we spend to train a Navy SEAL is right. astronomical, right? right? And so even if we go 10% in that direction, it's going to cost a ton of money. Yeah. And so I, I think that that's one of the things on our side we have to Well, and, and too, so. to, to be fair, that arose from Jocko Willink on Joe Rogan's podcast. Right. He's the emanator of that. And, and, and the nuance behind what he was saying was not that, that, that police should be Navy SEALs, but rather right. that we should invest, as you are pointing out, invest right, exactly. in the training where they're training 20% of the time and they're on the beat 80% of the time and saying, right. look, and, and, and Jocko acknowledged, that means you have to have more cops because if right. all of the cops are spending 20% of their time training, then you've always got to have enough cops to have 100% force out there while, while 20% are training. So you're absolutely right because I think a lot of people on the right ran with that and went out there and said, yeah, let's, let's, and it's almost like it became sloganized, right? Just like defund right. the police, train them like seals became sloganized. And, and the left hears that right. train them like seals. What the, what are you talking about? You know, that's right. militarizing. And what I think Jocko was trying to say was it was about the balance of training, not what they're actually right. trained to do. So I think you're absolutely exactly. right. I just wanted to point out that that's where that sort of emanated from. And you're right. It just became another yep. one of those slogans that people just tossed it out there without thinking about the nuance of it. Exactly. Um, I agree with you. I, I actually agree with what you've said here. I, I, I would rather take money from other programs as a small government, you know, libertarian with a small L, meaning I don't really have a party, but as a guy that resides in that world, I'd rather double what we spend on policing, um, you know, and cut other programs in order to have that. Because like you said, it's a basic function of government that we should be safe in our neighborhoods. When we, when America watched, Police in Scottsdale, Arizona, stand back and let a a um, you know an upscale mall get destroyed and looted. People really had a gut check because we thought, wait a minute, what are we spending our tax dollars for if we're not safe in our own neighborhoods? If we're not safe in our uh, you know wherever we are, and I think that alone was a wake up call to a lot of people. But it brings about this discussion: What do we want our cops to do? Right. Absolutely. Um. Next topic. COVID. Did you see the uh, viral video of the Santa Claus that told a kid he couldn't have a Nerf gun? This doesn't have to do with COVID, but it's like this went viral on uh, social media, and apparently that Santa got fired, thank goodness. But one of the points that I saw made on my social media was, with all that kids have lost in this last year, you have some guy pontificating about Nerf guns as if they're somehow dangerous to kids. And this kid right. just breaks down in tears. And I wondered if, like, even though that video went viral, there's something happening, I think, in the younger generation with this because we have taken them out of one of their most important things in life, and that's developmental years where they're socially interacting with each other and with adults in a school-type setting. And that's, I think, one of the un unfortunate fallouts of how we've mishandled COVID is going to be when we look back how so many children lost a year of development from special needs kids uh, to just normal everyday kids losing a year of their development because we overreacted in panic and fear. And we didn't, as people are saying in the media, like to say right now, we didn't follow the science on that one. Right. No, the, we, we absolutely did not. And there was a study that came out last week um, that talked about uh, basically the anticipated academic loss in kids from affluent zip codes is anywhere from a year to three years and that the anticipated academic loss in low-income zip codes is anywhere from three to five years wow. and so 
the the academic loss is one thing, but uh, at the same time, to your point, part of school is that social interaction, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's learning how to deal with kids who, like, you hope, right? Whenever a kid goes home, their their parents like and love them. It's a it's an environment where they can can create and do all that kind of stuff, but there's a benefit to somebody being like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Right. And that's more likely to happen at school than it is at home for a lot of kids. And so learning to deal with that, learning to overcome that. And and that's obviously not an endorsement of, of outright bullying, but learning to interact with people who think and feel and act differently than you and may not be as nice as you, or maybe nicer than you is an important part of development. And again, I think some people are getting that, um, in their neighborhoods, you know, I've, I've talked about this on our, our podcast quite a bit that there's probably a dozen kids that live in my neighborhood. And whenever we were work from home, they were outside playing all the time. And so they're getting some of that, mm-hmm. but yeah. to, to the last conversation that we had, if you're one of these kids who lives in one of these high crime neighborhoods and there are shootings on a yeah, you're not playing on outside. a near nightly basis. Your parents aren't going to want you out much right. after dark. Yeah, that's great for and the rich so, kids who live in the safe neighborhoods, but the poor kids who school is a respite from some of that and an opportunity to see a different outcome in life than what they're seeing from people who make bad decisions in their own neighborhoods. That is all being taken away from them, and unfortunately, they're having to hunker down in their homes, and that's that's a terrifying, uh, terrifying prospect. Absolutely. And by, by the way, you're right about the whole uh, it's good sometimes to hear that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Uh, when I was a kid, I got I got bullied a lot. And I remember this really formative conversation I had with my mom because it kept happening. And I don't know, I was like 10 or 11. And my mom finally, she said, you know what, son? She goes, you know, you come to me with this like once a week. And she's like, did you ever stop to think that maybe the problem is you? Now, when you're 10 years old and your mom turns around, what you're complaining about on you and says very bluntly, honestly, she goes, because I was a, here's what I was. I was a know-it-all and Mm. you know, Hey, big, big mystery. Why I ended up in communications, right? (laughs) I was a know-it-all and I would tell people opinions they didn't ask for. And I wasn't Mm. welcome to tell them. And it's why I kept getting my ass beat. And, Really, that was a really formative conversation I had with my mom. I remember to this day because it wasn't that she was being mean to me. She was simply saying, son, you have to stop a minute sometimes. And if this is the pattern, maybe it's not that they're all bad. Maybe it's that you're doing something that is creating. And she wasn't justifying what they were doing, but she was like, maybe you're doing something that is creating this dislike for you. Maybe there's some people skills you need to learn from this. And that was a formative right. conversation. So you're 100% right that kids need to be challenged. They need a little bit of pushback. It's very different from you know having your entire life exposed on social media. But in terms of interaction right. with other people, learning that other people have different opinions and that that is okay absolutely must happen. And it happens and it sharpens people and it happens in the that school setting a lot of times. Right. Yeah, because that's that's the world, right? Like the... The professional world, the adult world, is filled with people who would like to take advantage of you, who would like to make life more difficult for you, and so uh, you get kind of a to to use a contemporary example, you get kind of a vaccine to it yeah. in 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 your childhood and school because you get sort of a small dose of it, and it it hardens you a little bit to the fact that like, 
hey, the world's not all sunshine and rainbows, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, obviously, again, that does not excuse the, you know, incessant 21st century social media bullying that some of these kids have to put up with that, that thankfully, you and I did not have to. Yeah. Well, but, I'd, be, um, but I'd be a wreck if all my antics well, were caught yeah, on social yeah. media. <laughs> right. I was going to say, you may be dealing with it now, but as a hardened adult, you're able to deal with it in a right. way that um, that if you were 11 or 12 years old, it would probably be much more difficult yeah. for you to deal with. 100%. So, um, what do you make of the debate about who gets the vaccine first? I find this to be one of the most interesting conversations in America right now. So I have my own feelings about the vaccine, Josh. Um Personally, my dad always taught me, he's like, never buy the first year of a new model car because let some other fool uh, deal with all the bugs that come up in the first model and then they'll work it out and then you can buy one the next year. Um, and there was two lessons in that. One, you don't have to always keep up with the Joneses. It's okay not to have the latest, newest thing. But the other lesson was sometimes there's bugs in the first one and early adoption is great, but it doesn't always mean it, it's going to be a successful thing. So that's my personal feelings about vaccines i'm gonna wait and see if anybody grows a third arm out of their head and then maybe right. i'll take it but i'm not anti-vaccine and i recognize the amazing accomplishment that getting one in less than a year has has been and that's american excellence and innovation at work um but the discussion that i'm seeing that new york times had an article that actually brought race into it where they basically had uh, an expert who was insinuating that the elderly because everybody says the first gut reaction is the elderly should get it first right and they said, right. well, the elderly are, uh, I don't I'm going to try to use the right word here, but mostly white and mostly wealthy. And therefore, uh, because of inequities in the health system, we should give it to working class Americans first. So leave it to the mainstream media to bring the ridiculous race argument into it. But actually, if you right. think about this discussion, is it right to give it to the elderly first? Because that's our gut reaction. Because our, our gut reaction is, we want to take care of the elderly and the and the vulnerable. But there's actually, I've heard a couple different discussions on this. The first people that should get it should be frontline first first responders. That's 100%. But after right, that, yeah, but after that, what about the when we get on an airplane, and I just want to throw this out there for discussion. This is not my final opinion, but I'm just going to throw it out there. We get on an airplane, This the, the flight attendant tells us, if we're involved in a crash, we want you to put your, I know this is counterintuitive, but we want you to put your oxygen mask on first so that you will be conscious in order to put it on your ailing elderly loved one or your kid, right? There's a really funny yep. scene in Four Christmases about that where they're talking about that. Yeah. Um, yep. Could it be something like that where if we want to protect the elderly, perhaps inoculating the rest of society first because what happens is amongst mostly healthy people, most people don't know that they have it, which means they're carrying right. it to grandma and grandpa at Thanksgiving or Christmas or whenever they're over visiting, and they don't know they have it because they're not symptomatic, and then grandma and grandpa croaks. And I'm putting that right. kind of crassly, but maybe if we inoculate the rest of society first, we're actually putting the elderly first. What do you think about that? I mean, I think it's an interesting conversation with a lot of nuance. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a much larger conversation here, right, about the the role of government in this entire situation, right? Uh, this is something that I was talking to somebody about this morning, actually. That you know, we just had a conversation about law enforcement. I'm a big believer in the protection of public safety being a foundational uh, element of law enforcement. Is public health in the time of a pandemic actually a question of public safety, right? When you're talking about something 
that that does in fact kill people and the actions taken by individuals can increase or decrease the likelihood and risk that it will kill people right right, right. and so there's a really interesting philosophical you know scope of government question out there um, but if we if we for the sake of, of discussion say that it's it's appropriate for uh, elected officials to decide on a group of people getting this first I do think that the elderly makes a lot of sense for this reason. Um, and, and I say this at the risk of, uh, you know, social media spiking this <laughs> podcast and, and not allowing you to promote it. Right. But the overwhelming majority of non elderly people who get this virus, even if they get it bad, will survive. Right. The folks who don't are those who are elderly and typically have one or more comorbidity, right. everything from diabetes to um, other autoimmune disorders to to prior lung problems, things like that. And so if the goal of government restrictions on private life is to save lives, then why not give the vaccine to the people most at risk of actually dying right. and those who interact with those folks more regularly yeah. so that the rest of us can go back to a pretty normal life because even if we get it, we will survive in all likelihood. And there are, of course, tragic exceptions, all that, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But the, the deal that I'm sort of willing to make here, right, is inoculate, inoculate the elderly, inoculate first responders, and let the rest of us go back to our lives as yeah. we get vaccinated. I, I, and so, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. And, oh, and that just that just allows us to progress more quickly on removing restrictions yeah. than actually getting to herd immunity, right? Because herd immunity is you're talking sixty, seventy percent uh, immunization. They're talking about at this point, and so it's going to be a while just from a production standpoint till we can get there. Mm -hmm. But if we can inoculate the folks who die from this, then we should be able to go about our lives more quickly. That makes sense. Um, I think obviously first responders and then the elderly and then beyond that, because of what you said, because, again, what we're really debating is the goal. And what was right. terrifying about the New York Times article was most of it was about social justice being applied to the discussion about what the goal is. And that's right. that should terrify every American, no matter what political position you have, because when we start talking about um subjective social justice issues when i say subjective meaning some just because someone says somebody's victimized doesn't mean that they actually are um so the subjective yeah, I, idea go ahead i was say i don't know if you have have read helen pluckrose and james Lindsay's cynical theories yet no, i don't know no, i haven't read the book yet i know of it yeah I, it's on my list uh, of books to get to yeah it is an absolute must read because here's the thing leland for the folks, for for the for the postmodern left that has merged with the identity politics left, that are the folks who are writing those pieces, who are advocating those positions. Right. There is no other way for them to look at the world but through that lens. Right. And I think that's one of the things that we have to understand. Uh, frankly, it's not a, a worldview to be taken serious. Um, it will continue as long as we let it continue. Right. And it is problematic in that it's becoming more and more pervasive and it's making its way into corporate boardrooms and those kinds of things. But the, the postmodern left, the identity politics left in its current form 
can only look at a question and say, how do the instrumentalities of power and, you know, adjurisms uh, dictate how this is going to happen? And it yeah. just is what they're going to do. Well, and, and, and I think, again, that that seeing that in a New York Times article and seeing that the major it was almost as though the writers of the article were wrestling with this as if to take it serious, that we should consider right. race and socioeconomic status above saving the most number of lives. And I find that kind of ironic because here on the left, they're calling anyone who questions you know, any kind of lockdown edict from a, a left-leaning governor or mayor, they're calling them grandma killers. And yet we right. have this this discussion being taken seriously about social justice being applied to who gets the, vi who, who gets the vaccine. The, and again, I want to go right. back to what you were saying. If our goal is pure and simple, and this is how government should look at it. The government shouldn't look at your wealth. It shouldn't look at your color. It shouldn't look at your background. It shouldn't look at your religion. It shouldn't look at your uh, p political opinion. The government should look at each individual American as an individual American and try to save as many as possible. In a situation like this, that means exactly what you said. The most vulnerable should get it first, regardless of whether they have the money to pay their monthly you know, fees at the nursing home, regardless of whether they're living in a shack somewhere. The most right. vulnerable should get the virus or the vaccine first. And as you said, the rest of us should be allowed to go about our lives so that we don't put millions and millions and millions of more Americans into poverty as we already have done. Right. And and look, the, the socioeconomic question is somewhat of an interesting one in this context, because let's take let's take four 65 year olds. One's a lawyer, one's an accountant, one's a clerk at a convenience store, and one has taken Social Security and is retired at home, right? Right. The lawyer and the accountant are going to be in your upper income brackets. They also, in all likelihood, have worked from home for the overwhelming majority of this time period, and so their exposure is much less. Right. Now, the person who is taking Social Security and the person who's a clerk at a convenience store uh, neither one of them are going to be in your upper income brackets. They're going to be in your lower income right. brackets, right. Um, both on the sort of lower end of the socioeconomic uh, spectrum. But the individual who's collecting Social Security has also been able to stay home and uh, lower their risk and do those kinds of things, whereas the person who is a clerk at a convenience store was deemed an essential worker and has uh, worked throughout this process, right? right. And so um, there are socioeconomic impacts on who has had to work during this time and who has not. Right. But even that isn't evenly distributed, right? It makes more sense to give it to the clerk at the convenience store than it does the social security recipient. Right. right? And right. so it is, it is an oversimplification to simply say, um, poor folks should get it first. Well, um, and, and we're also discounting, this is when you apply these kinds of metrics to this, it's a never ending issue because take those same four people you can have a lawyer what what were your examples a clerk um a lawyer who else were the other two 65 year olds a social security recipient and what was the fourth one and and just an accountant just an accountant okay just an accountant all right maybe that accountant's an accountant for a charity organization right, right? maybe that lawyer is a corrupt lawyer maybe that person who is the security clerk or the uh, grocery store clerk is there 
because of a series of horrible decisions they made in their lives when they could have done a lot more than just working in a, in a convenience. We don't know, or maybe, or maybe, they're an incredible person who has given everything they've owned away in their entire life and works there just as a – we don't know. That's the point. You right. get into that. You right. start judging. You say, well, I'm, I'm just going to go by that guy's job and give him right. the virus. Well, right. wait a minute. We don't know what the circle – that's when you start to apply those metrics to this. You get lost in this. Well, why is that it, – and it, it's never-ending, and it's impossible. I do like your logic, though. When you look at, say, somebody that's a convenience store clerk, we have to have gas stations. We have to have grocery stores. In terms of those people being on the front lines the entire time and probably being somewhat socioeconomically disadvantaged, that also makes sense in saying, well, maybe right. we should front load those when it comes to once we get to the broader population. So we start with right. first responders. Then we go to the elderly and vulnerable. Then we go to frontline workers that are in broader society. And then we go to, you know, whatever's left. That would right. make sense to me intuitively where we're not judging those people, so to speak, based on the job they have. But we are looking at what their role in society is because of that job and how exposed they are to the virus. And therefore, because we're not we're not looking at them individually, we're just trying to save as many lives as possible. Going back to what you said earlier, the goal should be to save as many lives as possible. It should not be to decide who deserves it versus somebody else. Right. Right. And that's the thing. Right. Like and I think I think most Americans largely agree with that. Right. Yeah. That's intuitive. I'm going to I'm going to get the vaccine sort of whenever it's made available to me. Right. Like if if that's January. Great. If that's next April. Great. Whatever. But I, I want my grandmothers to get it first. Right. You know, like. If they came to me and they said, "Hey, Josh, you're you're pretty well connected. Here's a vaccine," I would say, "Okay, I'm going to give it to one of my grandmothers." Kind right, of thing. right. You know, it just because I am not at significant risk of of dying from this, and this can be the portion of the podcast they play if I get COVID and die from it. But <laughs> but but the statistical reality is that if I get it, it is very different than if one of my grandmothers gets it. Right. And so my preference is that they get the the vaccine before I do. Right. And I think I think the overwhelming majority of Americans look around and, and they all have somebody like that in their lives who is at a higher risk, whether it's because they're elderly or they have some autoimmune disorder and say, put them ahead of me in line. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. Put cops and EMTs and nurses ahead of me in line. I'm comfortable with that. And then, again, I think a lot of people look around and say, put the clerk at Kroger ahead of me in line, sure. especially for somebody like me. If I want to work from home, I can work from home. Right. Um, I would rather I, I, I'd rather the, the wait staff at the restaurant get it before I get it right. because I want to go to the right. restaurant and I want them employed. Right. Absolutely. You know, to to use a politically charged word, uh, I am privileged to be able to say a lot of you go before me and it's right. OK. And I think, again, a lot of people uh, who don't have qualms about vaccines generally or about this particular vaccine are saying, let people go ahead of me, not because they want to see how it plays out, but because they want the people who who need it quicker to, to get it more quickly. Well, I'm just going to tell you right now, friend to friend, when my number comes up, you can have mine first. Uh, okay. and, and if you don't grow a third arm out of the top of your head and you don't become yeah. a space alien or a zombie and you end up being stronger on your bench press, then I'm going to jump in line <laughs> and go ahead and get one after that. That's right. what That's what I'm watching I- for. 
I think the Russian vaccine definitely makes you strong. <laughs> so? so I've been looking into that one. I've been looking into that one a little bit for that. that yeah. That's one of the things about the vaccine. And I think one of the things that should give folks a little bit of, of calm as it relates to the vaccine is everything that you said is right, right about, about the first model of a car and, right, and about all that kind of stuff. But the benefit to these particular vaccines is they've taken place under the most scrutinized development process in human sure. history. That's a good point. Right? Like, the the whole world has been watching as this has gone on. And so if, if Pfizer screws up or Moderna screws up or AstraZeneca screws up, um, it, it's almost on us as much as it is anything else because yeah. we've watched this whole process play out. That's a good point. Um, do you think the restaurant industry will bounce back? You guys shared a, a post, I think it was from Bloomberg, about restaurants closing – um, about 110,000 restaurants have closed. The industry is in a free fall. Um, Louisville chefs saying that they don't believe it'll ever return to what it was. I, I find it ironic that the left has browbeat us over the head about how poverty kills people and the big get bigger and the rich get richer. And yet the very policies that they have embraced throughout this entire process have been policies that lead directly to big chains, big box stores, big uh, big business getting bigger while small business gets crushed underfoot, potentially never to return. I can go in Kentucky and I can, I can go and um, hobnob and bet on quote-unquote historical racing slot machines because that's what they are with a thousand of my closest friends, but I can't sit in a responsibly distanced restaurant and enjoy a meal for 20 minutes. That, that is asinine, right? And yet we're crushing those small businesses underfoot while, you know, God bless them. I appreciate, you know, their freedom to be in business. But while Churchill Downs rakes in the profits, it's not that I don't want Churchill Downs to rake in the profits. I want everybody to be able to rake in the profits. Bezos has seen his bottom line balloon like it's never ballooned before. And it's as a direct result of shutting down the economy because people have no other outlet. So it's 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 ridiculous that I can spend four hours wandering around Lowe's or Home Depot, uh, but I can't go into uh, you know the local um, boutique store to buy my wife a Christmas present. It's 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 ridiculous. So do you think small business ever recovers from this? Yeah, I hope you and your listeners like Applebee's and McDonald's because that's our culinary future. Yeah, right. Um, you know, the, I think. I think that, that a few local treasures will get saved by this, right? Because people will rally around behind them um, and, and make sure they stay in business. But um, I think it will be a long time before this country has a restaurant scene like it had right. in February of this year. Yeah. And I mean the small, you know, Palestinian-owned falafel place that is 400 square feet and the serves up the best that you can get. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The, the local taco place Mm. that you got to know a guy and travel through Narnia to get to, but everybody who knows, knows and always goes. Right. 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 Those are the places that have closed will continue to close. Um, and, the the owners who have poured blood, sweat, and tears into this place who are not, you know, top tier uh, income tax bracket folks, and the the number of folks that they employ, um, 
will have to try to find work elsewhere. And I think we will be a less rich country for it monetarily, yeah. but I think we'll be a less rich country culturally, culturally yeah. for, it, for it as well. And so that's the thing that, that bothers me so much about some of these restaurant-specific restrictions, right. right? Because there has been no data presented to suggest that restaurants are responsible for the spread that we're experiencing right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... And government if anything, it's being held at home that's responsible for the spread. If anything, it's right. being locked back down that's responsible for the spread. Right. Look, as 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 offensive as you can only have ten people in your home for Thanksgiving has, it actually makes sense as a uh, spread deterrent, right? Because you're close quarters, you're right. indoors, all that kind of stuff. You're not sanitizing the way those restaurants are sanitizing. There's no plexiglass and right. that kind of stuff. Right. And so, you know. There's been no data presented to say that restaurants are the problem, and yet restaurants are still facing these these challenges, these additional hurdles, and um, and I think we're going to be worse off for it. And again, I am not someone who believes that government gets the benefit of the doubt on these questions. You right. want to shut down restaurants, you need to prove that yep. shutting down restaurants is going to matter. I fully agree with you. Um, and in fact, I, I, I see that potentially changing as more and more restaurants stand up, I, I just bought um, a coffee cup from the restaurant in Lexington, Brood, that was at the yep. center of standing up. We had the owner of that organization on our our podcast couple about a week or so ago, Andrew Copper uh, Cooper Ringer Cooper Ryder. Sorry, I keep saying his name wrong. Um, terrific guy, and he's selling these coffee cups and Solaris. I bought one that said Andy's Tears. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and he's got he's got uh, t-shirts that say um, the first revolution started with tea the second one begins with coffee it's brilliant and i'm just trying That's to support yeah. them because you know they're standing up against this but they're, they're, it's it can be futile if government decides to put their harsh hand down on you and to your point about it, the the data i will say this cuz we kind of have to wrap it up now but i have said from about 3 weeks into this that the way to handle this is to keep the elderly and the vulnerable home Everyone don a mask when you're in public and then go about our business and build out infrastructure in hospitals in case we have a, a surge. But most likely, if we've kept the vulnerable home and safe, we won't. That, I think, is how we should have handled this. And it's how we should begin handling it now. And yet those leaders cry, follow the science. And despite the fact that what I just said is what the science shows, they continue to gobble up more and more unconstitutional power. Right. I mean, I, so I just got back from Miami. I, I was in Miami for four days um, over the weekend, did a long weekend down there. And the approach that they have taken in Miami and from my understanding, the whole state of Florida is socially distanced, put on a mask, go about your life. Right. And Seems uh, to be working. Their, deaths, their deaths per capita are significantly lower than these northeastern states that have locked down or California uh, nearly completely right and yeah. so um, I haven't looked at California's numbers so I, I don't I don't know personally for sure but it may be but I know for a fact that that Florida's deaths per capita are significantly lower than states like Massachusetts and New Jersey and that's and places like this that that's even more interesting when you consider the number of people supposedly in the vulnerable category that live in Florida Right, absolutely. I mean, uh, it is the playground of the elderly. Yeah. Right, and so the the fact that despite that they've been able to keep these numbers down again, while while not locking down the way some of these other states had, and they've taken some of those precautions 
around the elderly, but the other thing that they've done, right? Like I was, I was at the Miami Dolphins football game and I can't remember what their capacity number is, but it's definitely less than half. Right. And so everybody who you're not directly with is socially distanced. Every you're required to wear a mask the whole time that you're there, even though you're outside. And so these, these, there's hand sanitizer everywhere. I wish I was in the hand sanitizer business a year ago because I mean, it's just everywhere, right? And so, again, you can go about a, a largely normal life if you take the necessary precautions, but the necessary precautions aren't things like you can never eat in a restaurant again and stay right. in your home with the lights off. Totally agree. Totally agree. As always, I've enjoyed the conversation with you. Tell people how they can find Pegasus and the work that you guys do. Yep, so it's it's PegasusKentucky.org, Kentucky spelled out. Um, Pegasus Institute on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we've got the Pegasus podcast, uh, all that kind of stuff. All right. Love you, brother. Lift hard, okay? Absolutely. Will do. Appreciate right. it, Leland, talk, as always. All right. Talk again soon. Um, Joshua Crawford, he's executive director of the Pegasus Institute. Absolutely love that guy. And that was a fun and, uh, I think, deep conversation, which I think we need more of that in America. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our uh, podcast sponsors, uh, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Head on over to LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com to find out more. They did our kitchen. I stand behind this company. I'd only talk about businesses that I support. Uh, They uh, did wonderful, wonderful work for us, and I highly recommend them. If you're looking for a turnkey kitchen remodel, call one of their designers, Michelle, George, or uh, Kelly, at uh, at 502, uh, 502-930-3304 or just stop by the showroom at 6200 Hit Lane. If you're a contractor or a do-it-yourselfer, uh, they've got cabinets and ca- they've got cabinets in stock. Um, or if you want a turnkey kitchen remodel, they can help you with that as well. I love them, and I think you will too. Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Thanks to our executive producer, Cameron Mills. Uh, to JP Web Design and Dynamics Audio Productions. You can find us on Instagram at Great Lilando and at The Disruption Zone, on Twitter at Leland Show and at Zone Disruption. And of course, a free download podcast at iHeartRadio's app, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. This has been The Disruption Zone. I'm Leland Conway. Thanks for listening.